0: Hey everyone, this is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and this is our weekly podcast. Hope it encourages you. Hope it makes you want to be closer to Jesus and more like Him. Hope you enjoy this sermon. And if you want to know more about us, find us online at woodburnbaptist.org. Good morning, everybody. Everybody, good? Beautiful day, right? Beautiful, the best. Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter four. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church. If this is a a new place for you, we're happy that you're here. I've started a new sermon series entitled Repent, Rebuild, Revive. We're going verse by verse to the book of Nehemiah. We won't get to the end of Nehemiah. I'm sorry. Uh, We'll be turning the corner toward Advent and Christmas, y'all. It's almost, almost here. Uh, But we're going to go verse by verse today through chapter four. And I'm delighted to uh, to point you to God's Word today. Nehemiah chapter 4 is amazing. Nehemiah, as you know, was called by God to come back to Jerusalem. It was where his ancestors were from, but Nehemiah was living far, far away in the kingdom of Persia. God has just disrupted his life in a beautiful way and brought him here to do this job, which is to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. It had been in ruins for... hundreds of years at this point, and for over a hundred years, people have been intending to rebuild it, but nobody has built anything until Nehemiah comes along. Nehemiah chapter four is the story of how the wall gets built, but importantly, it's the story of opposition. Uh, If you haven't figured it out by now, I know you believe in God. You need to understand that there's a devil. You need to believe in the devil too. Uh, Not that the devil is all that powerful. He's not. I I don't want to preach this sermon and uh, and inflate the devil at all. He is not a powerful enemy, but he is an enemy. He has no power at all. Uh, to, to defeat you. However, he actually has a few strategies, a few tricks that make him very, very effective in causing us to quit. And so Nehemiah chapter four is a great place to learn, primarily because the devil is lazy He's never come up with any new tricks. It's the same old tricks. The way he opposes Nehemiah is going to be the way he will oppose you every single day of your life if you're trying to serve the Lord. That's why we look at Nehemiah chapter 4. His enemies were Sanballat and Tobiah, earthly men who were serving the purposes of the enemy. And we can learn much about how the enemy opposes us. Before we jump in, I just want to give you a couple, some of these are review because I have preached on spiritual warfare. We've talked about this all through my 27 years years of being your pastor but I know that uh, you forget things some of you haven't been around that long so let me just hit four basic principles of spiritual warfare and we'll go from there first off the devil never gives up without a fight the devil's not going to give you anything his purpose is to steal kill and destroy you're not going to make friends with him he's never going to cancel his plan to steal to kill to destroy everything he can in your life now understand number two Evil looks most like it may win right before it loses. I really want you to understand this. This is very important. It's in that moment when you feel like, oh my goodness, it's over. He wins, I'm defeated. Um, That's when you're closest to victory, but you don't know it. The devil knows that. So he always manages to be louder, uglier. He increases his attack. He blows more smoke. He makes you think you can't win. And he does all of that right before he loses always how it works. Look at the scriptures all the way through. The devil always looks most like he may win right before he loses. What that means is in your life, you quit You quit six inches from victory. Like You were so close. You were almost there. You were almost about to taste sweet victory. What you've been fighting for, what you've been struggling with. I mean, you were that close to receiving it, but you gave up because it looked like the devil was winning. It always will. Looks most like he's going to win right before he loses. Number two, three, the enemy has no power over you unless you give it to him. No power unless you give it to him. Scripture says, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I'm telling you, Christ is greater. The devil and God, they're not equals. It's not like yin and yang and they sort of balance each other out. That's not how the universe operates. God is God all by himself. He has no equal. The devil is a creature, a fallen creature. He has no real power. Jesus says the only power he has is to lie. He's a liar and the father of lies. However, the reason he hasn't had to develop any other strategies is because his lies tend to do the trick. That's all it takes. If you'll listen to a lie and then not engage the fight, he still wins. You understand that? So he has no power whatsoever over you unless you give it to him. And then the last thing, when the enemy can't defeat you, he'll set up for delaying, distracting, or discouraging you. He'd kill you if he could, he'd kill your children. I mean, do you understand? He's your enemy. But for the most part, he doesn't have that much power, so he'll just steal whatever he can from your life. He'll distract, he'll delay, he will discourage, he'll do whatever he can to oppose the work of God in your life and to keep you from serving the Lord. You understand that? If you can understand these sorts of things, then read Nehemiah chapter four with me and let's pay attention to how the enemy opposes Nehemiah. Pay attention to how Nehemiah responds to the enemy's attacks And uh, we'll learn lessons on how we can win strong, okay? Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. Y'all there? Let's go. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samaritan army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build a wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. Then I prayed, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads. May they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. Verse six, at last the wall was completed to half its height half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites and Astadites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there is, no, there is so much rubble to be moved. We'll never be able to build a wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we'll swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. The Jews who live near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. So, so I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half of my men worked while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. Then I explained to the nobles and officials and all the people, the work is very spread out. And we were widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet rush to wherever it's sounding, then our God will fight for us. We worked early and late from sunrise to sunset and half the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside the walls to stay in Jerusalem That way they and their servants could help with the guard duty at night and the work during the day. During this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me, none of us ever took off our clothes. We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water. Okay, um, just in my reading, I see two waves of the attack. Uh, Two waves. Uh, Verses one through six sort of uh, talk about the first stage of the building project. And there is uh, a particular strategy for opposition during that uh, part of the project. In the second part of the work, you notice the strategy shifts. So let's talk about the two waves of attack and talk about the first attack. I think this is very important. Please listen, pay attention. Chapter four, verse one. Ballot was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews. This is the first strategy. It sounds lame. I said the devil is lame. Did I mention he's lazy? I mean, he really doesn't exert himself any more than he has to. So his first strategy, the first means of attack, is just simply to mock God's people, to mock them in trying to do his work. Mock. Um, We don't use that word a lot in our lives, so how would you define that word? What does it mean to mock? Yeah, to to make fun of. They just make fun of them. I mean, all of a sudden, Sanballat and Tobiah are like a comedy team, you know, standing back here just making the people of God look ridiculous. Now, that sounds like a really lame, like, what kind of spiritual attack is that? I mean, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words can never harm me. Isn't that what we said? Words can't harm me. However, this is actually quite a very effective means of spiritual attack. This is the devil's first means because it's actually a very effective means. This is all it takes for most people. It's all it takes. Understand, the enemy thinks that you'll abandon God's will if he can just simply make you feel ridiculous enough for doing it. That's his plan. He knows that you'll probably give up and quit serving the Lord if he can just make you feel ridiculous for doing it. Now, if you've ever tried to do anything for the Lord, I promise you, you experience this. You have to recognize, I'm telling you the truth, this is the first thing the devil does when you try to take a stand for Christ. Anything you do, the devil is right there and this is his first attack. Whatever it is you're gonna do, if if you decide to try to share Christ with somebody at work, the minute you open your mouth, there'll be a voice in your head that says, You sound stupid. Who are you to try to do this? You you, you can't talk. Nobody's listening to you. He thinks you're weird. If you keep talking about Jesus, everybody's gonna think you're weird. I mean, this is the way the devil does us. He just simply knows that you and I are very, very vulnerable to social pressure, it's the way we're wired. I want people to like me. I want people to accept me. I want people to think that I'm a good guy, that I'm a a cool guy. I don't want the world to hate me. However, Jesus says they hated me. Jesus says they hated him. And if they hated him, then how do you think they're gonna treat us? It's the devil's first strategy. It's a very effective strategy. This is probably the reason that many of you don't serve the Lord. I mean, this is all it takes. The devil shut you down with just one strategy because it's very effective. This is why so many teenagers are Christians on Sunday at church, but they live like hell when they go to school. Very different person because they do not have the courage to stand up and be different for Christ at school, right? They do not have that courage. They do not want to be made fun of. They don't want people to think that they're weird. They don't wanna be uncool. But you're crazy if you think that kind of peer pressure only works on teenagers. I would love to see a generation of college students with the boldness and courage to go onto their campuses and take a stand for Christ, but it's very, very difficult on a university campus. You will be mocked. You will be made fun of. Your professors will make you feel stupid. I'm just telling you how it works. And if you think that just only works with, you know, younger people, I'm telling you, this explains why most of you don't share Christ anywhere. Why you don't try to do anything for the Lord. I mean, the devil can shut you down. You don't want to be laughed at. You don't want to feel silly. You don't want to look ridiculous. You don't want to be ridiculed. Now, the fact that so many of us are so vulnerable to to this Lame attack. I mean, this is the devil's first trick, and basically it's all he needs for most of us. And that doesn't bode well for us for this simple reason. Our culture, the United States culture, is turning further and further away from Christ. Now, this is, I, I can see it in my lifetime. I'm an old man, I'm, I'm 58. In, in my 58 years of life, I have seen a dramatic change in U.S. culture. I mean, they used to call this the Bible belt because so many people were Christians or you thought they were Christians just living around us. There was a time in Woodburn, Kentucky, if I knocked on doors, I'd knock on a door and everybody in every house told me they went to church, even if they didn't. I mean, there was a time when if you were starting out in business, they'd tell you, you probably ought to go to church because in U.S. culture at that time, it was assumed that people will think better of you if they think you go to church. Okay, that's not true anymore. Nobody's going to church to try to help their business anymore. Our culture has turned uh, 180 degrees in the opposite direction of of, of favoring Christianity in in any way. I mean, y'all paying attention? There was a pastor in Arizona last week preaching the gospel on the street and they shot him in the head. And nobody really cares. Are are, are you paying attention to that? Nobody really cares. In in, in our society, Christians are really the last group. You can say anything about them that you want. Nobody's gonna defend us. We are becoming a mockery and worse. I mean, it's not just that they laugh at us. They laugh at us. They tell us that, that we're on the wrong side of history. We're on the wrong side of politics. They tell us that we're hateful that were haters, that were bigots, that were all kinds of phobics. You understand? It's just the way the devil works. Understand that. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. It's not the people. It's the force of evil behind the society. It's the spirit of the world, and it is an evil spirit, and it is turning more and more against us in this culture. Now, the fact that it's happening here sounds shocking to us, but we're just now catching up with what our brothers and sisters around the world have been experiencing for centuries. We've had this blessed time of of, of basic complacency in the United States church, but it's ending quickly. I have no idea what kind of a world my son is gonna have to stand for Christ in, but it's not gonna be the world I've served Christ in. I can't imagine the society that my grandchildren will have to serve Christ in. It's not going to be the society I've served Christ in. It's getting harder, and it's going to keep getting harder. And I'm just telling you this, not to scare you, but to prepare you. I mean, if you've been afraid of just looking different, you've been afraid that people would think you're weird, if that's all it has taken to shut you down, you're going to be useless for Christ in the days to come useless and the devil has managed to make most United States churches useless in just this way we're just a little too sensitive to what people think of us it's the oldest trick in the book all Ballad and Tobiah had to do was stand back and make fun of them I'm telling you it sounds like a lame kind of attack and it is but it's also very effective It's, it's, it's very effective Our culture is turning further and further away from Christ. So you must prepare to be laughed at and worse. Just mark my word. Once we're made an object of mockery, it's very easy to make us an object of hate. They hated Jesus. They're going to hate us. Don't be surprised by that. This is the devil's oldest trick in the book. But it's not his only trick. Notice what happens from here. Verse six, the wall gets completed to halfway. I mean, they're almost there. Remember what I said? The devil's always gonna look most like he's winning right before he loses, and he's about to lose. They're about to build this wall. Now, one of the things that's hard to see in the way the text reads from here is that you don't understand how quickly this is happening. It took them over 100 years to get started, but they're building this wall in days. They are building this wall in days. I mean, it is happening, and it is awesome. Now, you would think that, you know, once you get into it, man, it gets exciting, but have y'all ever actually worked? The front part of a project is different than the back part of the project. I mean, in the beginning, it's kind of fun. We all show up together. We never built a wall before, but, you know, heck, we'll figure it out. We'll learn together. You know, I'd be sewing up in a brand new pair of Carhartt, you know, pants, and you'd be having car, because you got to, I mean... Carhartt is the, you know, Ralph Lauren of the working, you know, rednecks. And so there we'd be with our Carhartt, you know, new Carhartt on and our water jugs. And man, we'd be all about it. And then we'd work. But at first work is fun until work is just work. And at some point it's just work. And this is what happens on the backside of this project. They're almost there They're almost finished. But at this point, it just gets harder. And understand, at this point, the devil doubles down. He knows he's almost defeated. So at this point, he's going to work harder. He's going to scream louder. He's going to make everything more difficult. The devil is not going to give up without a fight. So notice this second wave. It's really interesting. I'm just calling your attention to it here because the devil's never come up with any new tricks. Verse seven. So when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Astadites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans. Now what? Stop. What? Like we started out with two guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, and now we got this whole gang of thugs. I mean, we got goons coming from every direction, and that's the point. I know you're not looking at maps, but you got maps in the back of your Bible and you always thought, I wonder what those maps are for. Well, this is what they're for. If you were to look at the maps, you would see that Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, Ashdod, Aram, I mean, all of these places. What you basically see here is north, south, east, and west. And so what happens is that now in, in the second wave of attack, the enemy's strategy is to come at them from every side. Now, still not a powerful enemy. They still cannot win. They do not have the power to stop what God's people are doing, and they're not going to win. I've read the end of the book. They do not win. But that does not mean they give up without a fight. And this is that second strategy, y'all. They're going to come at them from every single direction. Notice what the people say. I mean, they're like, they're going to come from all directions and attack us. That's verse 12. All right. It's a strategy. It's a strategy. The enemy's strategy is to overwhelm you. So it wants to overwhelm you, to paralyze you so that you won't engage the fight. How many of you had a sister growing up? Hands up. Okay, so you know what it is to have an enemy who fights dirty, right? If you had a brother, you fight like men because guys don't want to look dumb. You know, so if you're fighting a guy, man, you know, we we at least want to look awesome, even if we can't fight, you know. So we know how to make a fist. We know how to bob and weave a little bit of Muhammad Ali, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, you know. It's how guys fight. But did you have a sister? My sister just coming at me like a wood chipper, you know. She's just throwing punches. She'd get on her back and she'd be kicking both feet and, and beating. I mean, I'm just like, I mean, it's just like... Who can fight all of that? I don't even know how to start, you, you know? And, and this is the devil's, I'm not saying my sister's deaf. She's a wonderful lady, by the way. But, but I'm saying the enemy's strategy is just to overwhelm you every direction because you don't know how to defeat, you don't know how to fight an enemy that's coming from all sides. Now, if you've heard me preach in 27 years, you've heard me say this a 1,000 times. This is basically the Harris rule of spiritual warfare right here. Um, and I don't know another way to say it, but, but I, I see it this way. Satan doesn't usually send a shark to devour you in one bite. Instead, he sends a thousand minnows. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? A shark is a man eating, a woman eating, you know, gigantic beasts with teeth and ferocity. And the shark will come at you and, and the shark would kill you if it could. But actually, I've Googled this. It's actually pretty easy to fight a shark, y'all. If a shark comes at you, you know what to do? You punch him in the nose, absolutely. That's what they say. You just, boom, punch him right in the nose. And, you know, er, 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 he'll be gone. You punch him in the nose or poke him in the eyes. You don't have to be stronger than the shark. You don't have to outswim him. You don't have to do nothing. Just, boom, punch him in the nose. Google that, y'all. You'll know I'm right. If you don't Google it, if a shark washes up on the beach of Woodburn, y'all just call me. Boom. you know That's all you gotta do. If a shark comes at you from one direction, you can figure out how to engage that fight. But the devil rarely sends a shark to devour you one bite. He's gonna send a thousand minnows. Y'all know what a minnow is? Wait, this is Kentucky. Minner. Y'all know what a minner is? They're minners, right? some of my grandfather caught it we went fishing with minners we use minners for bait what's a minner y'all yeah it's a little bitty fish I mean just a little like just little it's it's bait it's like it's a fish like this I mean a minner could never hurt you you know the, the worst thing a minner could do is aggravate you at worst I mean you know it's nothing Nobody's ever been afraid of a a minnow. But the point here is, what if there's a thousand minnows? What if you're just in a swarm of of minnows? And this is how the devil works. This is what he does to you. A minnow is nothing. You can handle one of them. But if a thousand, if you're in a swarm, and this is what the devil's going to do, he's going to swarm you with problems. He's going to swarm you with attacks. He'll attack you from every side. Not because he knows that's how he'll defeat you. He can't defeat you. He knows that's how he'll make you quit. You won't fight. You're paralyzed. Have you seen him work this way in your life? Because I have. I mean, it's just how it works. Um, the, the day that your husband comes home from work and tells you he met somebody else will also be the day that you're daughter says that she may be pregnant and your water heater will spring a leak and um, you will find a lump under your arm. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Is that not how it is? The devil will leave you alone for a long, long time. And that's a strategy too. It, It makes you complacent. It makes you forget that you have an enemy who wants to steal, kill and destroy, you know? And so he'll leave you alone for a long time. And then an avalanche of problems will fall on you, and you don't know how to deal with that. One problem at a time, please, but that's not how it's going to work. He's going to bury you. He's never going to send a shark to you know, devour you in one bite. He will send a thousand minnows, and you will not know how to combat that kind of attack. You know what I'm saying? And so this is what happens in Nehemiah chapter four, the Ammonites, the Arabs, the Ashdodites, I mean, north, south, east, west, the people say they're coming from all directions. And that's the strategy. It's still the same enemy. They cannot win. They're not going to win. I've read the end of the story. But in that moment, in that fight, it seems overwhelming. And the temptation is to quit. But that's all the devil wants you to do. Don't quit. But now what happens next? Verse 8, so the Ammonites, the Astadites, the Arabs, Tobias, Sanballat, all of them together. Verse 8, they all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. Now we're in the second wave of attack now. So this is the devil now bringing out his big guns. But this is really Interesting. That the devil kind of moves into uh, what's it called, uh, psyops, you know, psychological operations. Now he gets in our head. Interesting. Again, I just remind you the devil's lazy. He doesn't have all that much power, but oh my goodness, the strategies he has—they just seem to work. They just seem to work, and confusion is a weapon. And he uses confusion. The the Astrodites, the Ammonites, Sambalat, Tobiah, if you can't mock them into giving up the work, now you just try to confuse them. Now understand, uh, just to speak in church terms, a confused church is a church under attack. Always, always. And because the devil never lets up on churches, we're always battling confusion. Again, it's just one of the devil's strategies, but but we rarely recognize the fact that, that he's behind it. Confusion. Confusion, uh, confuse. It just means the, the word itself means to, to pour together. So, with confusion, all of a sudden everything just runs together. It just pours together. And we don't know what we're doing anymore. We don't know how to think. It's just in those moments of confusion, you can't think straight and, and, and you can't communicate. I don't know what you're saying. You don't know what I'm saying anymore. And, and it's, just, it's confusing. We just sort of all lose our minds for a while. And I'm just saying, whenever you find that kind of spirit of confusion clouding a church, that's a spiritual attack. Just understand, and in some ways knowing that that's how the devil works, that should help us. We should recognize it quicker. And that means, you know, the the weapon we go to here is the truth and just clarity, Let's communicate. Let's figure out what's up. Let's get our heads screwed back on. Let's remember our mission. Let's remember our God. Let's remember that we love each other. I mean, you know, you just gotta come back to clarity. Man, if the devil can confuse God's people, he can shut them down. And again, it's an actual weapon. It's an actual uh, strategy of warfare, just confusion. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Man, if, if, if we find ourselves confused, that's not God confusing us, you know? That's the devil. It just is. If, if you know anything, if you've ever been involved, um, if, if you are a person who is attuned to spirits or if you have the gift of discernment, one of, one of the ways in which you discern the presence of an evil spirit is, is, is often that confusion. Um, it, it, it's triggering. And, and whenever you're in the presence of evil, there's always this cloud of confusion. It's the strangest thing. Um, but also, it's characteristic of the evil one. And God is not that author of confusion. He's a God of peace. But it goes further, y'all. And y'all stay with me now. Don't, don't, y'all stay with me. I, I want you to understand what I'm saying in verse 10. Then the people of Judah began to complain. What? Complain. Somehow when you get to verse 10, you realize, oh my goodness, this is gonna be the worst thing ever. You know, for what, everything that the enemy's throwing from the outside, now it's like he's, he's, he got in their heads and now, now it's, it's working inside. How does that work, you know? How does the devil you know, get inside? And, and I don't know that he does. I think he's lazier than that, I, but I do know that sometimes without meaning to, he can get one of us to serve his purposes. And and, and complaining is is one of the things you find throughout scripture. It's always characteristic of God's people at their worst. Complaining. Verse 10, the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired. There's so much rubble to be moved. We'll never be able to build the wall. People complaining. Um, Now let me say, We all complain, right? We all complain. How many of you right now would raise your hand in honesty and say, I have a complainer in my life? Hands up. Don't point. Don't want to, you know, just hands up. All right. How many of you would be honest and say, I am the complainer in somebody else's life? Hands up. Yeah, I am the complainer. Um, Truthfully, everybody should have probably raised their hand both times because we all have complainers in our life and we are the complainer in other people's lives. Complaining is human nature. To complain is simply to express dissatisfaction. And expressing dissatisfaction can be a very healthy, important thing. Know that. Complaining can have a very constructive purpose in a process of making things better. Uh, In other words, if I'm able to express an area of dissatisfaction, that can be the very first step in fixing a problem. And that's important. Y'all agree with me there? You understand that? So complaining in itself is not going to serve the devil's purposes. I'm I'm not saying that. But what I want you to understand is that it can. It can. My complaining can serve the enemy's purpose. And and so let's talk about when. When my my complaining serves the enemy's purpose. I've already said that complaining can be a step in the way of making things better. And it can. But sometimes it's not. And when it's not, it often serves the enemy's purposes. So I got two instances. The first one is is personal. It's inside you. Your complaint is going to serve the enemy's purpose when the devil gets you to fall into a pattern of thinking and speaking negatively unaware. So it, it becomes a pattern for you or for me. And understand, this is the devil opposing what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in my heart. If complaining is to express dissatisfaction, understand, if you continue down that road, if if you fall into a pattern of thinking negatively and then always speaking negatively, then you're practicing being dissatisfied all the time. And so if you constantly complain, if you fall into that pattern, and I'm saying unaware, you're probably not going to know you're doing it because few of us actually listen to ourselves talk. Everybody else has to, but you don't have to. We don't hear ourselves. And so you may not even understand that you have fallen into this pattern where you're just thinking negatively all the time and then you're just speaking negatively all the time. And once you're doing that, understand that the devil has a foothold in your heart. It's very difficult to nurture the fruit of the Spirit in my heart. It's very difficult for me to find the contentment that Christ wants to give me when all I'm doing is thinking and speaking about how dissatisfied I am. You see that? It's it's a pattern, and any of us can fall into it. And I'm just saying, watch yourself. Listen to yourself talk. You you, you don't want to fall into this pattern. You don't want to become that person who only sees things that you don't like. Now, one of the ways you can tell that it's a pattern is if you become the person that, like, you've been complaining about this, but once that gets fixed, you're going to be complaining about something new tomorrow, you know? Like, you don't know how to snap out of it. You're just going to go from one complaint to the other. That's probably a bad sign spiritually for you or for me. Does it make sense? So you're serving the enemy's purpose in your own life when you allow that bitterness to, to take hold in your mind, in your heart, and then it just continues to come out all the time. But, but number two, when might my, my complaining serve the enemy's purpose? Get this, when the enemy gets me to say the things he would say to others. Now, I get that from the word. I'm just sort of amazed. First off, remember I said that, Early on, the enemy was just mocking the people. And he's saying, who do you think you are? You really think you can do this? Y'all can't do this. You can't build a wall out of a pile of rocks. I and mean, that's what they were saying. But then you look down there in verse 10, and when the people start complaining, they're saying all the same things the enemy said in verse two. Like, now they're saying it. Now they're saying, we can't do this. Y'all, they've already demonstrated that they can. They are doing it. But now they've got in their heads that we can't do this. We can't turn a pile of rocks into a wall, but you're doing it, you know? But all of a sudden now, what the enemy was saying at the front of the story, now he's got the people of God saying it. You don't ever wanna fall into that place when you begin to say the things that the enemy would say to others around you. You wanna be that person? You understand what I'm saying? Now, if I ever do this, I don't mean to do this. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, man, I'm going to do the devil's work today. No, but, but do you understand how, how it happened? Yes, they're tired, and, and yes, there's still a lot of rubble, a lot of work to be done, but, but the rest of this isn't even true. It's, it's what the enemy would say, and now they're saying it. I would never want to be a voice of discouragement for you. You know what I mean? I mean, I know it's hard to serve the Lord and and our teenagers who who are going to have to stand for Christ in a world you and I have never even known. They're going to have to be strong and stand strong. I would never want to be the voice of one who who makes them think they can't do that. I would never want to stand before this church or or, or in the fellowship of this church and be the one that makes people think they can't do what God calls us to do. You don't want to be the voice of discouragement. Remember, if the devil can't defeat us, he'll settle for delaying, distracting, and discouraging. I don't want to serve those purposes, but but I can. You you can too. Again, the devil, man, he's lazy, y'all. He ain't going to walk in here and fight us all one at a time. But if he can just open that back door and roll a stink bomb in this place, you know, that's what he'll do. Just roll a stink bomb, and then we lose our minds, and, 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 and then we just do what he'd do if he were here. He doesn't even have to come to church on Sunday if he can cause us. You see, we don't ever mean to, to serve his purposes, but when we ourselves become a voice or a presence that, that causes confusion or if we become the ones that are discouraging others, then we really have to stop and listen to ourselves talk. Does that make sense? Do you, know, you know what I'm saying? Um, a, a couple of things real fast. My favorite verse, maybe, maybe anywhere, certainly in the book of Nehemiah is verse 14. I love it. It's just such a brave heart moment where Nehemiah steps out and the people are tired and the people are discouraged and the enemy's on every side and Nehemiah just steps out and says, don't fear the enemy, remember the Lord. It's just this amazing, you know, refocusing. Stop listening to the enemy. Stop listening to Sanballat and Tobiah. Stop repeating what they say. Put them out of your mind. Remember the Lord. He is great and glorious. The Lord is great and glorious. It doesn't matter anything about me or you. I don't have to be strong enough for the fight. I go out in the strength of Christ. Remember the Lord. He is great. He is glorious. This is how we win our battles. Christ, Christ. Remember the Lord. He is great and glorious and fight. What does he say? And fight. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah just says, remember who you're fighting for. And nowhere in that list is it yourself. Notice he doesn't say, hey, y'all really going to let them talk like that about you? You need to get out there. Don't you put up with that. Go out there and stand up for yourself. No. No. I'm not standing up for myself. Nehemiah doesn't motivate God's people by saying, hey, let's make this about you. Go out there and stand up for yourself. Make sure they hear you. No, no. Nehemiah says, let's go. Remember who you're fighting for. You're fighting for your brothers. You're fighting for your sons. You're fighting for your sisters and daughters and mothers, your nieces, your nephews, this whole lost community. You're fighting for others. I I love that. And then just this last part, verse 19. I explained to the nobles and officials and all the people the work is very spread out. We are widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it's sounding and our God will fight for us. Um, just the small principle right there. It's not small at all, but um, the closer we are, the stronger we are. Can you imagine being on the, the last part of this project and they're doing well, but it's hard to see how well you're doing when you see how much you've got left to do, you know? And you just want to quit. And there may be thousands of people out there doing the same job, but you're separated and they're far down the wall. And so you don't see anybody else. So you've been sweating. I mean, if you read the last part of Nehemiah chapter four, I'm like the day and night, y'all, they work all day. They keep watch at night. Nehemiah won't let them take their clothes off, which means like you can't ever like put on pajama pants and relax. It's not time for them. Nobody got time for that. So, you wearing those Carhartt boots and steel toe boots and Carhartt pants and, and your, your work clothes, like you don't ever get to put any of that down. Even if you go get a drink of water, they're working with one hand and fighting the enemy with the other hand. I mean, it's got to be exhausting. It's got to be exhausting. And it's one thing to do all that with others, but then when you look up and you feel like you're the only one, And this is what Nehemiah is saying. Y'all, the work is spread out and and you're spread out and that can't be good. So understand, when I blow the trumpet, you gotta know how to come back close really fast so our God can fight for us. Understand? The closer we are, the stronger we are. It's just no fun to look up and think, man, I think I'm the only one working here. I think I'm the only one trying to serve the Lord. And, And that's how it is when you get to school. It's not going to be easy to stand for Christ at South Warren High School, Bowling Green High School. I mean, those aren't friendly places for believers. Let's be honest. Western Kentucky University, you know, that's not a friendly place. You're going to sometimes feel like, man, I'm the only one. And sometimes you may have to stand alone. But but we're supposed to have each other. Which means you're never going to be alone as long as you've got me. I'm never going to be fighting this battle on my own as long as I've got you. We need each other. Nehemiah knew that, that the further we are from one another, the more vulnerable we are to the enemy. Stay together. Come close. We need each other. We need each other desperately. Because there's an enemy. I mean, our God is great and glorious, and we're not going to fear the enemy. We're going to remember the Lord, but... But you'd be a fool not to realize that you're going to be opposed. You have an enemy. It's his full-time job, you. Tearing you up, chewing you up, spitting you out. I mean, he would kill you if he could. You don't understand this? He's never going to give up without a fight. Sometimes he looks most like he's going to win right before he loses. And then sometimes you quit right before the victory, and so he does win. Only because you never engaged the fight. Do you understand It's Nehemiah chapter 4, it's how the enemy worked back then, but it's the same thing today, chapter 1. I mean, you know, it's the same enemy, the same devil, the same force of darkness that opposes all the light that is Christ. It's never been easy to serve the Lord, to stand for the Lord, or to do the work of the Lord. I'm just reminding you, it's about to get harder for us. So just remember who you're fighting for. Your sons, your daughters, your grandchildren, nieces and nephews, a lost community. Remember the Lord who's great and glorious. Know that the devil's never gonna give up without a fight. He's not gonna give us anything. He's not gonna give us a break. But understand, we've read the end of the book. We know he's already defeated. There is no way we lose this fight unless we refuse to engage it. Remember the Lord, Nehemiah says, and fight. Pray with me.